I, when people ask me what I'm interested in studying, the first thing I tell them is that I have attention deficit disorder when it comes to science. Uh, and they start out thinking I have attention deficit disorder, which I don't, but I do when it comes to science. So um, I tend to have ideas that range all over the place. And even though I was told early in graduate school, study one thing and study it very, very deeply, uh, that never really worked for me. And I was lucky enough that I didn't have to. So my ideas tend to all focus on what we call loosely the social brain. So how is it that um, our brain uh, is evolved to make us social? Uh, how does it successfully make us social? And what are its limitations? How does it uh, lead to contexts where uh, we think we understand what's going on, but we're mistaken? And that can lead to all sorts of interpersonal issues. My research... Uh, goes all over the place. My research stems from work that I've uh, done with my wife on how we experience social pain. And I did that for several years, but now I think a lot more of my questions focus on social thinking, uh, how we understand other people and ourselves, uh, and how our brain seems to be really strongly predisposed to get us into the mindset for thinking about other people. It's not just one of many different programs we can call up. We can do that too. I'm going to think about algebra now. I'm going to think about history. But one of the things that's really intriguing to me is that it seems like the brain, of all the things it could choose, it seems to choose by default bringing up a, a way of thinking about the world socially and, and perhaps getting us ready to walk into the next moment of our lives to think socially. Uh, and, you know, that's pretty surprising and it's something I don't think we would have known without looking at the brain. And... and there's an argument to be made that we don't actually know that yet, but there's some really intriguing hints to suggest that that's what the brain is doing. Um, so there's a, a whole line of work looking at how there's a specific set of machinery that is designed for thinking about the minds of other people. So if you're playing poker with someone and you're trying to figure out if they're bluffing or not, what you're really trying to do is peer inside their mind and figure out, despite what they're showing on their face, despite what they've bet, what do they really think? What do they really believe? Uh, and we do it there. We do it when we're trying to uh, empathize uh, with a child who's suffering or someone halfway around the world who's suffering that we see on TV. We're trying to sort of mentally travel into their worlds and understand the world as they see and experience it. And we have lots of machinery that seems to be kind of dedicated for that, suggesting it's really important. It helps us in innumerable ways in our daily lives. Um, but it seems to have this tendency to come on uh, and have a certain kind of primacy over other kinds of thinking. I think that's really interesting. So that's one of the major thrusts of the work we do, and we have various different explorations there. Um, I think the other major thing that we are focusing on uh, these days uh, is thinking about how messages spread and that could be in various different ways. That can be in the sort of old notion of persuasion, showing you advertisements. What makes an advertisement sticky? What makes um, an ad that you see on TV make you change your behavior? Right? We're bombarded with constant advertisements from people trying to get us to go see this movie or buy this beer. Uh, or in the case of the work we do, it's usually public health getting people in Los Angeles to use sunscreen, helping people to quit smoking, uh, people who uh, are uh, overweight and at risk for uh, diabetes and cancer, how do you increase their daily activity levels? 
Uh, and so we're really interested in that. And you might think that the things that get people to change their behavior are things that are uh, memorable, uh, that they can sort of use their kind of analytical brain to set down a long-term trace, or even just emotional. But surprisingly, what we see is the brain regions that seem to be involved in successful persuasion. Uh, we can predict who will use more sunscreen next week based on how their brain responds to an ad today. And the brain regions that seem to be critical to that are brain regions involved in social thinking, in thinking about yourself and thinking about other people. And so this seems to be more about our identity and the identities that we're capable of trying on. If I can't try on the identity that you're suggesting to me being a sunscreen-using person or a non-smoker or something like that, the ad is much less likely to stick. At least that's what we think uh, is going on there. So we're interested in that straight-up kind of persuasion. In the modern world, often what you're really more interested in is making messages spread, go viral, uh, what's sticky, what has buzz. And there again, we don't see the parts of the brain that are involved in analytical thinking or memory. We see the parts of the brain that are involved in thinking about other people's minds, the social brain. And so if I want to persuade you of something, what I need to be thinking about uh, is not the merits of the thing itself that I'm trying to persuade you of, but rather, how are you going to experience whatever I say to you? And what am I going to say to you that makes you think it'll be cool for you to get to be the guy to tell the next person and so on in the game of telephone that we play with new jokes or new stories or old stories. Uh, and so we've seen uh, this work suggesting that it's, it's the more social parts of the brain that seem to be involved in helping to spread information virally. And we can you know, predict which messages, which advertisements will spread and get people to go on Facebook uh, and tell their friends about a movie trailer that they just saw. We can predict that reasonably well from looking at their uh, brains when, when they don't realize it. Uh, but you can also think about it from the context of increasing education. Education is all about the spread of messages, uh, and we're very interested in that as well. How do we use what we're learning about the social brain and the fact that it helps people make messages more sticky? Uh, how can we use that to enhance uh, education in, say, eighth grade? which to me is a national crisis, right? That's when we lose kids. Kids, little kids, I have a seven-year-old, all of his friends love school. And then they hit puberty and they have no interest in school anymore. Uh, they tune out, they're interested in their friends, the teacher becomes the enemy. And, uh, and I think uh, part of it is that we're not necessarily tapping into what are some more evolved historical ways to get people to... Uh, to learn better. And, you know, historical learning was all about storytelling and not just storytelling, but knowing that you yourself would be responsible for telling that story to others. And so there's old behavioral work and work that we're doing that, that looks at um, the ways in which we can get someone to think of themselves as a storyteller to actually learn science and math better than if they think of themselves as an end receiver who will never have to do anything other than take a test. And, uh, and you know, we think this is an opportunity, among many others, to, to really change the way uh, certain kinds of education may be done. And obviously the, the nation's very worried about having more well-trained scientists and mathematicians and engineers and so on. Uh, so I think those are some of the big... Um, uh, questions that we can answer with data.
there's always the questions that I, I have trouble thinking about how to answer with data, and that's why I became a psychologist and not a philosopher, which was my original path in life. Yeah, so I think there's the questions that we don't do a good job of uh, answering with data because we don't know how to get close to the question. Um, and uh, so those questions are still on my mind 35 years after I first was exposed to them from various philosophers, but I don't know that we're any closer to answers. I, I think there's a huge problem uh, in our society with uh, educational interest and attainment dropping off. Uh, we are, in every metric that comes out, we're falling behind lots of the other industrialized countries of the world. Uh, they're either catching up faster than we're moving or they've already moved past us uh, in math, science, and reading. Uh, I think some of these things are predictable uh, we are a much more comfortable country than we were 50 years ago. And comfort when you're multiple generations into uh, immigrants in a country, the, the kids are more comfortable than the parents who are more comfortable than their parents. And so there is an easing off. And perhaps maybe you start to emphasize personal happiness or your children's personal happiness more than you emphasize um, uh, sort of more societally mandated metrics of success, which usually benefits society more than the individual, uh, in my opinion, a lot of the time. There's a lot of doctors who do a lot of good for other people and who aren't very happy being doctors. And I think that's part of what the sort of social contract really is. Uh, you agree to do stuff that's going to help us and, uh, and you'll be compensated, but you might have made a different choice if you knew how all this was going to play out. In a place uh, like all the BRIC countries, and China in particular, there's so much aspiration. There's so much expectancy that the next generation is going to take China to even greater heights than they already seem to be reaching. And I don't think we expect that of our children. And I don't know that we should. Uh, I'm not sure that that phase, uh, that sort of almost uh, young adult adolescent phase of nationhood is necessarily the greatest thing. It does lead to, I think, many, well, in our case, in America's case, inventions and inventiveness. It doesn't seem to be that way in China so much. Uh, but it leads to a lot of activity. Uh, but it also leads to a lot of unhappiness. It leads to a lot of midlife crises and so on. And uh, I'm not sure that's the ultimate goal, um, to, to get the country to be the most productive. I'm not really interested in gross domestic product as a real indicator of... of how my family is doing. Uh, I was raised in the shadow of both my parents being young hippies in the 60s and early 70s. And so a lot of my life is either a continuation or a reaction. And what they were doing was a response to growing up in the early 50s and, and so on. I, you know, And I just think you can see those things recapitulated uh, either in new immigrant groups coming to America or in other countries. So in terms of raising my child, I... Uh, I do think about it uh, quite seriously, and I think I'm a bit more um, authoritarian than I might have guessed. The data suggests that young children do need sort of authoritative guidance. Um, I, I'm always happy to admit that I know a small, small portion of what can be known, and that he already knows things I don't know and will ultimately possibly know far more than me. I don't try to portray myself in any way as flawless, but I do say this is the rule and you have to do this because you have to do it. Um, and, uh, and that's part of my job. Uh, I spent a lot of time visiting um, drug rehab uh, 
family group meetings at an earlier uh, point in time in my life. And it was fascinating to watch the guy who ran those and to watch the kids. It was all boys. And the boys who came in, you would think these were kids who had grown up on the wrong side of the tracks. And there were some, but many of the kids were the kids who had grown up on the right side of the tracks and had never been told no their entire childhood. And so now, as young adults, they didn't know what to do with themselves. They had no direction, they had no incentive, and they had no self-control. And so they got into drugs and they were fooling their parents. And the guy who ran this facility, he was authoritative. He was authoritarian. And he basically said, I care for more for you more than you understand. But doing that means not doing what's best for you today. It's about figuring out how to get you to be someone who can go live for the next 50 years. <sighs> the world of psychology these days um, is a strange one. Um, when I got into psychology, and of course, as a graduate student, you probably just don't know some of the things that are going on. But when I got into psychology, the internet didn't really exist yet. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it just seemed like there were a lot of people turning the final screws on what their advisors had done and their advisors' advisors. Um, I work in social psychology where technically that's about understanding other people and how they function. But a whole lot of social psychology is really just about understanding our own everyday experiences. So clinical psychologists studies maladaptive experiences. When you're too anxious or too depressed, uh, cognitive psychology studies isolated parts of mental processing, memory, reasoning. And social psychologists, for whatever reason, tend to be the folks who want to understand how do we get along in everyday life. And it's not always about social stuff, but you can still be a social psychologist and study things that aren't social at all. For instance, how do you change your own attitudes? That's a social psychological thing. It should be a cognitive thing, but it's not. It's social. So there are these tribes, and whatever members of the tribe do, that's still part of social psychology. When I got into the field, it didn't seem like there were any uh, career-threatening giant debates going on. And now... It just seems to be all over the place. Every 20 to 30 years, my field of social psychology seems to go through another crisis. There was a crisis in the 50s where somebody published a paper and it killed the most exciting area of research in social psychology for 20 years. And then in the 70s, there was something actually called the crisis of social psychology. And now there's the replication crisis, which is a replication crisis in science, if it's even a crisis. I think it's just we need to be reminded sometimes that When you see the first flashy study published in science or psych science, it's just an anecdote. It's a scientific anecdote, and we should go collect some more. And it can be a really exciting one that you want to tell all your friends about, but it's one little tiny piece of data. And I think that uh, we've perhaps taken to assuming those things were facts, and then we're shocked when those things don't replicate in study number two. Um, But there's a lot of stuff going on where there's now people making their careers out of trying to take down other people's careers. And the replication isn't necessarily an unbiased process as it's presented by. There are camps. And suddenly now, failing to replicate someone else is really seen as an indictment in many people's eyes of the person who did the original research, rather than saying, you know, there's expectancy effects. If I expect not to replicate someone's work, that's going to influence how I design my study the measures I look at, um, it's going to influence how I interact with my participants. And I've heard stories about uh, participants saying that they've been told, oh, you're just in a replication effort, so it doesn't matter if you know more than you should. 
there are things going on. And, and it, it is troubling to me. And I haven't been targeted in those. But watching John Barge, whose work I've admired for 20 years, uh, be attacked in that way is, is hard to watch. And other folks in that camp as well. So these days, the person who I think has most been in the uh, crosshairs of the whole replication world that, that's uh, bubbling up in social psychology is Simone Schnall. Uh, she's um, a professor at uh, Cambridge. She's actually on sabbatical uh, right here at UCLA right now, so she's around. And um, she's done work that I've admired over the years. I've actually never met her in person, uh, but I hope to very soon. And, uh, and she's done work on what's called embodied cognition. And embodied cognition uh, is getting at the idea that certain kinds of concepts that we have uh, might be linked to other representations that we might not expect. So the idea of kind of being um, morally dirty may somehow be linked to our concepts for being uh, dirty in the literal sense. And so there are these studies suggesting that washing your hands uh, can affect your uh, sense of uh, being moral or immoral and so on. These studies are very interesting. They're very counterintuitive, which I think leads lots of people to wonder whether or not they're legitimate. And I think that's a reasonable thing to wonder about whenever you see something that sort of confounds uh, intuition. That's the way science works. Um, I've never run studies in that area, so I, I don't really have a, a, a real horse in that race other than it's really interesting stuff. And when it's really interesting, I kind of always hope it turns out to be true because that's more interesting, but we don't know. She's done work that seems to me to be uh, very good and other labs around the world, not just she herself, but other labs have replicated versions uh, of the work that she's done. So that seems reasonably compelling to me. And then there's this uh, ongoing replication effort. And I, I do have some issues with the process of selecting who's going to do the replications, what their qualifications are for doing those things. Have they done successful work in that area previously? Uh, because if they haven't shown that they can successfully get other priming effects or other embodied cognition effects, uh, how do I know that they can do this? I wouldn't go and try to do chemistry. I, I don't know anything about doing chemistry. So there are issues like that. There are issues with screening out people who have expectations that run against the original hypotheses because we've known for 60 years that those expectations are going to guide results. Uh, and that needs to be taken into account. But be that as it may, her study was uh, replicated in this effort and it was unsuccessful. It didn't replicate her results. And some of what was done seemed very good. They got in touch with her. They tried to work with her to uh, make sure that they were replicating her methods. And, and I think that the early steps in the process seemed great. And then at a certain point, they seemed to have said, you know, you're out of the process. And the journal that was publishing all this work had pre-accepted all the papers. So they didn't go through peer review. And that is very troubling. It's very troubling when the people who have the power to damn the original research aren't getting peer-reviewed. And I don't think they should have been reviewed by Simone. I, I'm a journal editor. I can always get someone else who's impartial and doesn't uh, care which way the results come out to review these things. But it needs to be reviewed. Um, and had it been reviewed, maybe it would have come out just the way it was. But with something this sensitive, it's important to get the process right. And I think there's some recognition that the process wasn't right. But then what happened was that this all blew up on Twitter. Something that couldn't have happened 30 years ago in one of these scientific crises. 
it spreads out into the world. The neuroskeptics and the other places out there can grab hold of this and spread it, and it can spread in an uninformed way, um, and it can get nasty. People say things that I think they wouldn't say uh, if they were in the room with each other, necessarily. Maybe they would. Um, and they act as if they don't realize they're being watched, but they are. And so both sides, I think, have said things that maybe shouldn't have been said. And, uh, and now there's this deeper motivational division, and there are people taking sides. My first impulse, because I've been attacked before by folks who I think didn't understand the, the way we do our neuroimaging work, um, and they, they didn't really take the time to get to know what we were doing, my impulse was to be very defensive for anyone whose work was unsuccessfully replicated because I saw some of the, the personal ambition come in on the other side of trying to create a career out of a failure to replicate someone. Not create a career, um, enhance a career. And, and that concerns me. Um, but uh, it will be interesting to see how, how this goes forward. Uh, anyone who says that replication isn't absolutely essential to the success of science uh, is pretty crazy on that issue as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but uh, making a sort of public process of replication and a group deciding who replicates, what they replicate, uh, only replicating the most counterintuitive findings, only replicating things that tend to be cheap and easy to replicate, it tends to put a target on certain people's heads and not others. And I don't think that's very good science that we should sanction as a group. If we're going to do it as a group, and I've written about this uh, on the internet, uh, I think what we should have is perhaps a set of nominated studies every year that should be replicated, and those studies should be assigned to labs that say, I'll take whatever study you assign to me, and here are my qualifications, and we assign them to the qualified labs. Uh, we get them to give their predictions before they're assigned anything, so we know what their predictions are. We know what their uh, expectancy effects might be. And then maybe we do it that way. Or maybe we do it the old-fashioned way, which is when studies are interesting, people go replicate them because they want to go build on them. And, and if they don't work, then that brings attention to them not working. So when it's come to the replication uh, crisis, as it were, in social psychology, I think what's made it distinctive from past issues in social psychology is the way that it's being played out on social media. Um, and everyone quickly goes to these sound bites, and the sound bites uh, are all exclamations. They're, uh, they're, they're rarely genuine questions. They're rarely, uh, I think, really thoughtful. Um, and, and this leads to uh, an, an escalation on both sides very quickly. Uh, and I've said things that, you know, I probably shouldn't have said. Uh, I think things that I certainly wish I, I hadn't said, even, you know, just on Facebook, thinking that only my friends and colleagues would see those things. And then suddenly it turns out that one person, you know, passed that on to the other camp and suddenly I'm in the crosshairs uh, when I didn't imagine that I possibly would be. And, and so it's a, it's a much more leaky uh, but fast-moving process. And, and then I think that uh, there is this tendency for each of us to sort of take to our blogs. I have a blog. Lots of my colleagues have blogs. And they are unfiltered. They're unedited. So if I have an opinion about something, when John Barge uh, was first uh, criticized because a, a paper had come out not replicating his uh, most famous priming study, I wrote a blog about it, and it got a fair bit of attention, um, and it is uh, rewarding 
uh, in a way that writing a book, uh, you know, it's sort of the, the sort of fast and easy high versus the slow, perhaps long high. And writing a blog and getting attention and even getting the other side riled up uh, is a way to sort of get that quick, fast um, uh, burst that I, I think is uh, and can be kind of addictive and uh, sort of bad for everyone. Uh, involved and so I, you know, on the other hand, I, I think blogging is a wonderful thing. Uh, it's a way to try to share science uh, in a way that makes it interesting to a much broader audience without having to wait for a book to come along to synthesize, you know, two hundred different studies. Uh, but like everything, uh, like every weapon and every technology that's ever been developed, there's good and there's bad. Uh, but I think in the replication effort uh, issue. Uh, we've all, myself included, seen some of the sort of bad parts uh, come out. And uh, At this point, we haven't done any studies on social media addiction or kind of the high that comes from uh, engaging in social media processes. Uh, we're looking to get a sort of full-size uh, typing keyboard that you can take into the MR scanning environment. And at that point, you can have touch typists who can't see their fingers but could still fully engage with a Twitter feed or Facebook and so on. Uh, and so we're very, very interested in seeing what happens when we see different kinds of uh, people uh, retweeting something that we've retweeted or their responses to our tweets. Uh, for anyone who's engaged, uh, this is something that uh, can take on a real big part of your life and be very, very rewarding. There's a new thing that just came out in some biological journal called the Kardashian Index. I don't know if you saw it, but it's uh, the Kardashian Index uh, is a uh, you plot the number of times your scientific papers have been cited against the number of Twitter followers you have. And if you are an outlier on the Y-index, it kind of means you have too many Twitter followers relative to the amount of science you're producing. So if Danny Kahneman has a whole lot of Twitter followers, that's okay because he's been cited more than anyone else. But if you're a graduate student, it's not okay because you should be producing more science and not talking about it. I don't buy that, but it, but it sort of speaks to this idea that there is this appeal to kind of being famous for being famous that the Kardashians who live about 20 miles from here seem to, to have. Uh, and on Twitter, you can, you can become that, both because you're the right kind of DJ for the information and really do a good job of spreading certain kinds of ideas, but also because you can have a lot of fun um, going after people. And there's a lot of people out there who love seeing anyone go after and take down anyone else in science. And we're in a phase right now where there's a lot of taking down. And I don't think that's as useful as the constructive idea generation, which almost never comes out of those fights. So when I think about the next five years and what do I want to accomplish, there's sort of two different goals. Uh, the one goal is to try to develop uh, more basic science in areas that I think are underdeveloped. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for instance, here is a, a relatively radical area. Uh, if you look at the brain while it's dreaming, the regions of the brain that are sort of most likely to be active are the social regions of the brain. And we're learning some things that suggest the social regions of the brain may be involved in developing and putting into memory new social information. So maybe a big part of what sleep is about is making us more uh, socially at ease with the social world that we live in during the day. No one has looked at this in any way. So that's something that we would like to go look at. And that would just be very, very basic science in a new area that hasn't been looked at. Uh, 
But on the other hand, uh, I am very, very interested in how we take the work that we and others have already done and figure out a way to go do something that's useful now or, or in the near term that can change the way uh, we do education with kids, can change the way that um, people in the military get training about other cultures or get training about just the basic procedures uh, of doing things so that anyone can learn to do their job better. Uh, I'll tell you about my new favorite idea, which is really an old idea like all new favorite ideas. Um, There was an old idea in the 1960s. It was only used in a couple of studies ever, so I feel like it's still ripe for a lot of things to be done. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that was called latitude of acceptance. If I want to persuade you, what I need to do is pitch my arguments so that they're sort of in the range of this bubble around your current belief, so that it's not too far from your current belief. But it's within this bubble. So if your belief is here and you're, you know, you're really, really uh, anti-guns, let's say, and I want to move you a bit. If I come along and say, here's the pro-gun position, you're actually going to move further away. Okay? It's outside the bubble of things that I can consider as reasonable. Uh, and so we all have these latitudes around our beliefs, our values, our attitudes, uh, which teams are okay to root for and so on. And I think these bubbles move. I think they flex. I think when you're drunk or had a good meal or with people you care about versus strangers, these bubbles flex and move in different ways. And I think that getting two groups to work together is about trying to get them to a place where their bubbles overlap. Not their ideas, not their beliefs, but the bubbles that surround their ideas. And once you do that, you don't try to get them to go to the other position. You try to get them to see there's some common ground that you don't both share, but that you think would be a not crazy position to hold. There's uh, the old Carlin bit about when you drive on the road, anyone going faster than me is a maniac and anyone going slower than me is a jerk. Um, And I think that that's the way we, we live our lives. We're always going the right speed and everybody else is missing the boat. And we don't take into account that I'm going fast today because I got to get to the hospital or I'm going slow today because I know I had something to drink and I shouldn't have, so I'm going to drive real slow. We don't take those things into account. We just think whatever I'm doing is the right thing. Uh, And we we have to sort of recognize there's this space around those. And if we can find that overlap, um, we can get some movement. And so that's not a nudge idea per se. It's really about finding when people are in in, in a mental space where they're more open to other ideas. Uh, And what is often going on there is you're trying on identities. William James said long ago that we have as many identities as people that we know, um, and probably more than that. We are different with different people. Uh, I'm different with my son than I am with you. And, uh, And so we have these different identities that we try on, and they sort of surround us. So with some friends, I can be more of a centrist, and with other friends, I might be more of a liberal, depending on what feels like it'll work in that moment. And they can all be authentic positions that I really believe at different points in time. And so I'm really interested in looking at that as a mechanism of persuasion when it comes to regular old persuasion, when it comes to education, when it comes to public health, and when it comes to international issues as well. It's, it's finding that uh, latitude of acceptance and finding out how to use it successfully.